Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you now. As mentioned in the first part of this three-part series on Tom Thompson, other than my murder mystery parlor game that I published in 2004, and a few comments in my award-winning book, Algonquin Voices, Selected Stories of Canoe Lake Women, I've avoided taking on the task of telling the Tom Thompson story. Firstly, this is because many people more experienced than I in the field of storytelling have extensively done so over the last hundred years. Secondly, as a lifelong canoe-like resident, I always felt I might be too close to the topic to do it the justice it deserves, without a significant amount of what inventing Tom Thompson author Cheryl Grace called inventor creativity. However, with the anniversary of his burial at Canoe Lake at hand, I feel now I'm ready for this challenge. By the way, as mentioned previously, I take full responsibility for the way in which I've woven the story together and do hope that you find it entertaining and thought-provoking. So here goes. Drum roll, please. In the 1940s, Edwin Guillet, a prolific historian and high school teacher, took up the Thompson mystery baton and came to many of the same conclusions that Davies did, though he concluded that, quote, finding any sort of clear answer so long after Thompson died would be nearly impossible. In 1943, to support the festivities surrounding Algonquin Park's 50th anniversary, park officials commissioned author Audrey Saunders, to research and write a history of the park. With Algonquin's story running 200 pages, she dedicated two entire chapters, close to 10% of her book, to, quote, discussing Tom Thompson's art and considering the circumstances of his death. Interestingly, she recounts a possible new chronology for the last morning of Thompson's life. According to the Algonquin story, Thompson and Fraser had passed by Robinson's cabin early in the day, and not around lunchtime, as Robinson had later recounted in 1930. The two then separated, Fraser going on to Mowat Lodge and Thompson to have tea with Molly Colson at the Algonquin Hotel. According to Mrs. Colson, Tom was his normal self that morning and chatted in a friendly fashion. She also said that Thompson returned to Canoe Lake around 1 p.m. and that guests at the lodge saw him leave Fraser's Landing. Even more interesting was her comment that Tom's canoe was found floating upright and empty behind Little Wap Island, with his paddles lashed properly in place, ready for portaging, and his food still tied in the bow. Once Tom's body was recovered, she she suggested Robinson and one of his guides stayed overnight and kept watch over the body. Some of these details had never been suggested before. Another decade passed when in 1955 Dr. R. P. Little wrote an essay in Culture magazine on the circumstances surrounding Tom Thompson on Canoe Lake in the spring and summer of 1917. Little was not present during the events in question. He was on a fishing trip in the park and didn't return to Canoe Lake until late July. But as he wrote, quote, I first met Tom by the shore near Mowat Lodge. Dressed like a woodsman in Mackinac trousers, He was camped in a grove of birch trees situated on the north shore of Canoe Lake, immediately opposite the old mill. Tom was living in a tent amid his Hudson Bay blankets, panels, pots, and provisions. 
What a horse is to a cowboy, a 16-foot canvas-covered canoe was to Tom. I asked him if I could camp with him. Tom said he had no objections, but doubted if I would like the cooking as he lived largely on bacon, flapjacks, fish, and potatoes. Little added a few more interesting tidbits to the story. That Thompson had held a little exhibition in the Moat Lodge dining room in May, offering some works to his friends. That Thompson was, quote, letting out his copper fishing line while paddling through the narrows to the right of the islands. That after they found Tom's canoe, the Bletchers towed it to their cabin and put it in their boathouse. And that Charlie Shrim had found Tom's canoe not on the water, but in the Bletcher boathouse. He also suggested that dynamite had been exploded in the lake without result, supposedly to shake loose any objects that might have been submerged. Littles was the first published account to note that there was fishing line wrapped around Thompson's ankle. According to Clages in his book, The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, Blodwin Davies had known this from Robinson, but she did not publish this tidbit in her 1935 book for some reason. Little also said that it was a metal casket that Thompson had buried in at Moet Cemetery, and intimated that Moet Cemetery was an established place for native Aboriginal burials. Again, little or no solid evidence of these claims was provided, just hearsay. By the 1950s, Robinson, while long retired from the park ranger staff, would often visit Camp Omic on Canoe Lake to tell stories of his time ranging in the park. These stories, of course, always included his recollections of Tom Thompson, the man and the artist, his disappearance, and his mysterious death. What makes these stories particularly interesting now is that many were wildly inconsistent with both what Robinson wrote in his diary during the spring and summer of 1917 and with what he told Blodwin Davies during his correspondence with her in the 1930s. This we know because there was a recording of one of them that was stored and given to the Algonquin Park archives in the 1950s. Some of the most interesting details included a story of a heroic Thompson and Charlie Shrim who once rescued two canoes full of people in danger of drowning and took no credit for it. That Thompson wasn't a man who drank. That Thompson specifically tried to enlist during the first year of the war, both in Toronto and maybe at some outside point in the country, and when turned down twice, he gave up that Thompson painted 90-odd works that spring following the daily change in the weather. A retelling of the Joe Lake Dam fish story, but this time saying he saw Tom walking with Molly and Ed Colson up to their hotel. Well, later it changed to the fact that he was watching Tom and Shannon walk past the Joe Lake station carrying what Robinson thought was a fishing rod. Curious, Robinson explained, he got out his binoculars and ran down to the shore on the opposite side of Joe Lake Stream, and sat down watching them fish and overheard their conversation about Tom finding a replacement fish to trick him with. Or later, upon climbing the opposite bank, Tom had seen Robinson in his hiding place as he stopped, turned back, and called out howdy to the hidden Robinson. That Thompson had left Fraser Landing at 1.30 p.m., not the 12.50 p.m. that Fraser had noted on his pocket watch. That it seemed fishy that it was only 90 minutes after Thompson's departure when the Bletchers say that they saw his canoe at 3 p.m. That both of Thompson's two carrying paddles were tied in place, ready for portaging, but that Thompson had a third paddle that he used for paddling that was never found. 
that at the inquest, one of the guides, likely George Rowe, objected and started to remonstrate, but the coroner's response was to interrupt him, stating that the case was closed. That there were more extensive details about the fishing line that he now said were wrapped 16 or 17 times around Thompson's ankle. Interestingly, Robinson said that he detailed that in his diary, which proved to actually not be true. That park guides Rowe and Dixon had dug the Mowat Cemetery grave approximately 6 feet 4 inches deep, but then when he saw it later, after Thompson's body had been exhumed, the gravesite hole seemed to be only about 20 inches across and the same deep. That Bletcher was a deserter from the American military service, the same claim made by Davies and many years later refuted by the U.S. military. Robinson also picked up on Davies' thought, saying he thought it looked like Thompson had been struck in the head with the sharp edge of a paddle. All of these stories, of course, were repeated so many times over and over for years at Camp Amick. Eventually they became facts and were often repeated to me by numerous Canoe Lake parents and friends during the annual July 8th celebrations honoring the anniversary of Tom Thompson's death that we had at Canoe Lake. Later, after Robinson's death, Camp Omic dedicated a cabin to him. When I was a Wapameo camper and then staff member, this cabin housed the camp library and could be found by the shore beside the main dining hall. With all the many rumors, opinions, and conflicting facts surrounding this story, the stage was set for what would become a very unorthodox adventure and set the Tom Thompson murder mystery theories on fire. In October 1956, two men associated with Camp Omic. William Little and Jack Eastaw, both camp alumni, were visiting Canoe Lake, where Jack was painting the fall colors. According to William Little's later book, The Tom Thompson Mystery, he and Eastaw were up at the Mowat Cemetery, where Jack was painting the gnarly old birch tree that oversaw the location. Little got to musing about the still unsolved mystery and proposed that they recruit a few local fellows and, quote, find out if this grave still exists. The two then recruited Frank Brock and Gibby Gibson. Brock was a retired high school teacher who had taught vocational subjects at Guelph Collegiate and owned a cabin lease beside the lighthouse on Canoe Lake. Gibby Gibson had arrived in the park in the 1930s to work on the Depression-era project that built Highway 60. He was married to Lulu Farley, whose father Everett had been the foreman of the Canoe Lake Lumber Company and later both cabin builder and postmaster. Lulu and Gibby together leased a cabin up on Potter Creek. Fueled up by their conversation, the next day the four undertook to locate and dig up the original Thompson gravesite and ascertain once and for all the final resting place of Tom Thompson. With much discussion as to where to start and after several false starts in the heavily overgrown cemetery, the group first found the remains of a rough pine box. Further digging showed this box had caved in upon an oak casket. The lead-colored casket handles appeared to still be in good condition, and on them they could read the inscription, Rest in Peace. According to Roy McGregor's Northern Light, Gibby jumped down head first to explore the opening that they'd found and pulled out a bone which appeared to be a foot bone. Concerned now that they might be in a wee bit of potential trouble, they took the bone and headed down the hill and over to Little Wapameo Island to consult with Dr. Harry Ebbs, a medical doctor who was a summer resident there. He immediately identified the bone as human and contacted the Ontario Provincial Police. Soon after, the police sent out Constable E. Roger to assess what they had found. Roger then completed the excavation of the rest of the remains. 
Strangely, any evidence of buttons, belt buckles, suspender clips, shoe nails, or any other clothing that might normally be found in a coffin could not be located. With more new questions and answers, it was remembered that Thompson had been buried without his clothes, a result of both the hurried medical examination and the state of decomposition of his body at the time of burial. What was found, though, were pieces of what were probably the casket lining, the remnants of cotton or light canvas shroud, and the heel impression of a woolen sock. Also in attendance was Dr. Noble Sharp, the ranking medical officer in the Ontario Provincial Government's crime lab. A cursory examination of the skeleton and bones suggested that this person was some one of the same size and stature as Tom Thompson. A closer look at the skull revealed a hole around the left temple that could have been caused by a bullet, though no evidence of one was found either in the skull cavity or its surrounding area. The remains were then taken for evaluation back to Toronto. One surprising thing was that Dr. Ebbs took a photograph of the skull as it was being removed from the grave. He never shared it with anyone despite decades of ongoing controversy after William Little published his 1970 book detailing their dig and offering his resulting theories as to what happened to Tom Thompson. Rory Mackay, a freelance Algonquin Park historian and naturalist who I've talked about in previous episodes, interviewed Dr. Ebbs in 1975. Dr. Ebbs agreed to the interview on the condition that its contents not be publicly revealed until he either had died or he had finished writing a book he wanted to write on the events. Years later, after Dr. Ebbs died, his family shared the photograph as well as the Mackay interview with Roy McGregor, which led to his investigations and conclusions in 2011, which we'll talk about later. It, of course, didn't take long before the media got a hold of the story, causing another firestorm of speculation. Alas, within a few days, the anticipation of the question as to whether or not Thompson's remains were still at Canoe Lake seemed like it was finally going to be resolved once and for all, only to again come crashing down. On October 16, 1956, just a few weeks later, Kelso Roberts, Ontario's Attorney General, announced that the forensic assessment had concluded that remains discovered by the Canoe Lake Mary Band of Diggers was in fact not Tom Thompson. Instead, they concluded it was the remnants of a Mongolian-type descendant, either Indian or nearly full-breed Indian, about 5 foot 8 inches in height and approximately 30 years of age. This could not be the tall 40-year-old Thompson. The suspected bullet hole they surmised was more likely the result of a trephination operation performed at some time in the deceased's life. This operation, though not common in the 19s, was sometimes used after an accident to relieve pressure on the brain. Dr. J.C.B. Grant, a professor of anatomy and anthropology, and Dr. Eric Linnell, professor of neuropathology, both from the University of Toronto, helped Dr. Sharp with the determination of the body's ethnicity and with the identification of the hole in the skull. According to my Canoe Lake friends and neighbors, this conclusion was considered ridiculous, as, quote, no Indigenous people had been seen in or around Canoe Lake in the previous 50 years, let alone buried there. In addition, it would have been very unusual for anyone to be buried in a small Canoe Lake cemetery secretly, without the locals knowing. But even more unusual was the thought that if this wasn't Thompson, why was it that the body appeared to be buried without any clothing, jewelry, or trinkets of any sort? 
Needless to say, this evidence only added more confusion and suspicion to what continued to be the ongoing unsolved mystery of Tom Thompson's death. A death that seemed to get more and more complex and convoluted as the years went on. Even more puzzling was the discovery in 2011 that the small, peaceful, neglected Moet Cemetery may not have been all what it seemed to be. Stay tuned, as this I'll talk about a little later. The announcement from Ontario's Attorney General put a giant hole in all Tom Thompson's speculation. But it did not shut it down, not by a long shot. In 1962, R. H. Hubbard published another short Thompson biography and totally rejected all the talk and gossip of anything but an accidental drowning. According to Clages, Hubbard did repeat, though, many of the unfounded stories as put forth by Blodwin Davies in 1935. In 1967, to mark the 50th anniversary of Thompson's death, A. Y. Jackson arranged the republishing of Davies' 1935 book. He wrote a foreword to the book, changed the title to read a story, not a study, of Tom Thompson, and did some pretty heavy-duty editing. Interestingly, he edited out, for instance, much of Davy's more inflammatory statements and conclusions, and reinforced the accidental death narrative, though he did acknowledge the theories of suicide, heart attack, and foul play. As Cheryl Grace noted, Jackson also situated Thompson as a great and heroic woodsman, artist of the North, that he was considered the founder of the Group of Seven and the instigator of the movement to the North Country, neither of which were true and that he later corrected. Later in 1968, 12 years after the fact, Dr. Noble Sharp entered the fray again as well and wrote that the hole in the skull found by the 1956 diggers, quote, had no radiating fractures around the hole, and there was no beveling, a condition generally associated with passage of a bullet. Interest by the public must have been high, as soon after the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation recruited both Dr. Sharp and William Little as consultants on what became a docudrama called Was Tom Thompson Murdered, which hit the airwaves in 1969. Also published that year was a biography by Audlin Addison and Elizabeth Harwood. Addison was Ranger Park Robinson's daughter, who of course likely had a personal interest in the saga. As Cheryl Grace reports, Addison and Harwood's book was interesting because it was, quote, the first to add all kinds of photographs and documentary evidence that grounded Thompson as a successful outdoorsman as artist figure, who appeared competent and a natural fit for the park environment. Addison was also the first to suggest that Thompson wasn't originally a total amateur with nature, and had in fact spent, quote, considerable time with a relative, Dr. William Brody, a well-known naturalist at the time, and had even helped him collect specimens at one time. She was also the first to talk about Winifred Trainer and her possible role in Thompson's life, and the gossip, attributed of course to Annie Fraser, that was found in a letter lying around suggesting that they were about to be married. The book also included a picture of Trainer that it took 40 years to once and for all clarify that this image wasn't her, which was done by journalist Roy McGregor. Addison shared that her father had found it hard to, quote, accept the accidental drowning verdict in so skilled a woodsman, but went on to say in the end, quote, it is idle to examine the various theories advanced to explain his death. Many of them are far-fetched and misleading. Facts to support any theory are almost impossible to obtain. 
It appears unlikely now that any completely satisfactory explanation of Thompson's death will be found. George Thompson, Jr., Tom Thompson's brother, George's son, introduced another bit of speculation in 1969. He commented that his father had at one time speculated that Thompson had had a sprained ankle when he died. This thought not only provided a reason for the supposed wrapped fishing line, but also suggested a possible reason for him falling out of his canoe and his accidental death. Of course, not wanting to stay on the sidelines, in 1970, William Little's book, The Tom Thompson Murder Mystery, was published. In it, he described his version of the details of the dig and went on to proclaim that in his view, Martin Bletcher Jr. had murdered Thompson by hitting him on the head with a paddle. This was the first time that anyone had publicly suggested murder, though Davies, as indicated previously, had alluded to it in 1935. He also introduced a new twist, never before shared and without evidence, that on the night of July 7th, a number of men, including Thompson, George Rowe, another guide, Laurie Dixon, Shannon Fraser, and Martin Bletcher Jr., had met to drink some bootleg liquor at Guide Rowe's cabin on the old Gilmore Mill site. According to Little, Bletcher and Thompson got into an argument, either about the war or about Winifred Trainer and the two were, quote, prevented from exchanging blows only by the good-natured efforts of the guides. Bletcher was said to have threatened Thompson by saying, quote, stay out of my way if you know what's good for you. This heated disagreement Little then used to support his view that Martin Bletcher Jr. was indeed the alleged murderer, and his pictures of the skull with the hole in it completed the picture. Little added in his book all kinds of, quote, new, unquote, information about Winnie Trainer. some of it not very flattering. He also replayed Robinson's story of the last morning of Thompson's life, including the fishing discussion, and the, quote, wave and howdy scene, and the thought that other Moat Lodge visitors had watched Thompson leave that Sunday morning. He also reported the supposed fishing line wrapped around Thompson's ankle, the missing, quote, working paddle, and the carrying paddle as that was knotted in a most unorthodox way, he said, an idea that could have easily been proven wrong with a quick look at the pages of Mark Thompson's diary. As recorded, of course, in Addison and Harwood's book, he also suggested that George Thompson had been meeting with searchers who gathered daily at Robinson's cabin and met the train bearing Thompson's body in Owen Sound on July 19th. Alas, most of this was reported by Little as if it was uncontroversial facts when most was supposition, with some flights of amazing imagination thrown in. He also suggested that the Thompson family should allow the opening of the grave at Leith to prove that Thompson was in fact there and not at Canoe Lake. As noted by Clauses, the CBC broadcast and likely Little's book, I would suggest, produced, quote, considerable revulsion amongst the local citizens and upset Thompson's relatives, as noted in the Owen Sound Times newspaper. However, the reenactments and the re-envisioning of the narrative must have struck another chord, as over the years, both did seem to influence the recollections of a number of the participants at the time. It's interesting to note that even today, 50 years after its publication, it is Little's version of the story that has lasted the longest and deeply influenced all kinds of later research and speculation as to what did happen to Thompson on that day. His theorizing brought to light a new dimension, quote, that of the fact that remains had been found 
where there weren't supposed to have been any, a conundrum that exists to this day. Seven years later, in early 1977, Ron Pittaway, on behalf of the Algonquin Park Archives, interviewed Daphne Crombie to collect her recollections of her time on Canoe Lake in 1917. As mentioned in Part 1, Crombie and her husband Robin had been staying at Mowat Lodge both before Thompson's disappearance and later that fall. At the age of 94 and still spry, she did so, and Roy McGregor interviewed her ten months later also. In those interviews, Crombie shared that Annie Fraser and she had become close friends, and that Fraser had confided in her that she had read one of Trainer's letters to Thompson. In this letter, Trainer allegedly suggested that Thompson get a new suit because, quote, we'll have to get married. Now, previously, in 1972, Charles Pluman, the seconded pallbearer at Thompson's first burial, hinted and then later walked back his notion that Trainer had been pregnant and was pressing Thompson to go through with the marriage. But Crombie also echoed Little's story about the July 7th party, but framed a different outcome. She said that Annie had told her that Tom had confronted her husband, Shannon Fraser, about repaying the $250 loan for the canoes. The two of them got into a fight, and Shannon had knocked Thompson down, whereby his head had struck the fire grate. Thinking he'd killed him, Shannon, with the help of Fanny, had taken the perhaps fatally injured Thompson, placed him in his canoe, towed it out to the middle of the lake, and dumped it, not realizing that Thompson may well have just been knocked out, and wasn't dead as they surmised. Of course, the thought that Trainer might have been pregnant and, quote, had to get married, unquote, caused another firestorm on all kinds of levels, so much so that McGregor wrote a 1980 novel about it originally called Shorelines. His story told of Janet Turner departing to Philadelphia from Canoe Lake in the fall of 1917, where she apparently had a child out of wedlock. Fast forward some number of years, the child, Eleanor Pilpot, was now trying to ascertain her birther origins. Luckily for McGregor, Winnie Trainer had died in 1962, otherwise he might have found himself banished from the family as Trainer was his aunt's sister. One of the truthful things in the novel, though, as mentioned in part two, was the fact that Trainer had indeed gone to Philadelphia with her mother in November after Thompson died and didn't return until the following April in 1918. Thinking that his storyline might have had some truth to it, many years later, McGregor and others tried to ascertain if there were any records in Pennsylvania. So far, that's not yielded any major results. On a side note, Neil Leto, in his 2005 fictional book on the mystery, Algonquin Elegy, he speculated that the last night Thompson and Trainer might have been together was likely sometime around May 25, 1917. Of course, the timing is interesting. However, what resonates with me on this topic as a Canoe Lake resident is what Grace and McGregor reflect on, namely that if the stories that circulated via movies and books in the late 1960s and early 70s had been circulating in 1917, it would have been a completely different story. As McGregor wrote, quote, the artist's reputation would have been deeply tarnished by the notion that Tom had jilted a woman he was to have married, or worse, had abandoned a pregnant girlfriend. Or, as Grace wrote, quote, in the rather stuffy, puritanical, middle-class circles of early 20th century Ontario, public discussion of what would be deemed such scandalous behavior as drinking, fighting, foul play, 
and possibly illicit sex with Annie Fraser or Winifred Trainer or both or someone else would have been seen as unseemly, indecorous, and no one would have wanted to have been tarred with such a brush, including Jackson, Lismer, MacDonald, and definitely not Thompson's family in Owen Sound, unquote. But as McGregor went on to say, such talk, quote, now merely adds a salacious dividend to a mystery that was growing larger and more intriguing as the years went by. Fierce denials by trainers' Huntsville friends likely fed even more speculation and provided, as McGregor said, a more romantic and tragic end to the story. Thinking about that, why don't we now take a short musical break with another song from Ian Tamblin. This one's called That Boxcar in Algoma, and it reprises a famous boxcar that members of the Group of Seven lived in and sketched from during their visits to Algoma after World War I and into the 1920s. In it, Harris reminisces of Tom and wishes he was there. Montreal was tumbling down And the shadows chased the north fall night The cut of frost hangs in the air And a boxcar glowed by kerosene light The leaves today were yellow-red the sky today was endless blue The rocks today were weather-worn There could not be a better view As waves of color danced the night A million stars, there was no Laughter spilled from a golden light Southbound freight came rumbling through The sky today blue west wind clouds The sky today was endless blue The sky today cannot be bought Still I hope my color's true Oil and turp now fill the room As Lismer scrapes his palette bare A.Y. hums a maudlin tune Well, Jock and Harris, they were talking there Did you see that craggy pine Out on the ledge hung in the air It sent a shiver right down my spine Oh, how I wish that Tom was here He would say, 
Boys, that tree is mine You'd have that palette knife out then and there Remember how he could paint so fast Oh, how I wish that Tom was here well, Clouds, they held the mist And through that fog burned brilliant light we, we caught that light late afternoon And then returned here for the night I do not know where I am bound I do not know nor do I care It is enough to paint This land in spirit, light, and northern air. As the shadows chased a north fall night, the cut of frost hangs in the air, and a boxcar glowed by kerosene light. Oh, how I wish I was with them there. Montreal came tumbling down The question, though, of whether or not Thompson and Trainer were involved in a romantic relationship still lives on to this day. No concrete evidence exists but lots of speculation. One source, McGregor's cousin, Terence McCormick, said at one time that he had letters proving so, but never produced them. Two others, park ranger Bud Callaghan and trainer's friend Irene Ewig, intimated that trainer was far more interested in Tom than he was in her, and that, quote, Tom was not interested in marriage. But then there's the reservation of the honeymoon cabin at the Billy Bear Lodge on Bella Lake near Huntsville that Thompson supposedly made for that fall. This as well has never been proven, but continues to have life. In addition to the Crombie interviews, 1977 was a prolific year for other Thompson speculations and books. The CBC produced another TV docudrama called Tom Thompson and the Group of Seven, 1910 to 1920. But more importantly, artist Harold Town and respected art scholar David Silcox authored the first Thompson coffee table-sized book called The Silence in the Storm. With 177 realistically photographed images of Thompson's work, of which 77 were in color, almost half were to scale reproductions. The two wrote their books. Purpose was to, quote, mark the 100th anniversary of Thompson's birth and celebrate the artist's talent by displaying the range and power of Thompson's achievements as a painter. Their focus was on appreciating his art, not speculating on his demise. Their view, though, was that, quote, Thompson's work and his legend could bear tough scrutiny without losing either grace or power. They set out to, quote, present a feast for the eye and the mind in the hope that this representation of Thompson's paintings will allow others to share our sense of celebration of a great Canadian, unquote. What is interesting about this book is that it was the first time that Thompson's work had been accurately reproduced so that anyone could view it. Though the McMichael Canadian Art Collection in Kleinberg, Ontario, and the Tom Thompson Art Gallery in Owen Sound had both opened a decade earlier, 
1966 and 1967 respectively, I would argue that it was this availability of Thompson's work in one's own living room that likely started what has now become a collective obsession. According to Cheryl Grace in her book Inventing Tom Thompson, Town's view was that, quote, Thompson was moving rapidly towards abstract expressionism, and if accurate could, if he had lived, set the stage for a Canadian, not an American, to usher in modernist perspectives, which would have been something, at least according to those in the art world. The other interesting perspective that Grace notes in Silcox's comments are the notions that Thompson wasn't as free from other influences that some like to suggest. These influences, he said, were, quote, very evident in his work, including art books, magazines, exhibits, Art Nouveau designs, and, of course, his fellow artists. According to Silcox, Thompson picked up coloring from Jackson, expressionist techniques such as gestural painting and bold forms from Harris. Silcox said it was J.E.H. MacDonald and Harris who, quote, conditioned the way Thompson saw landscape and gave him mental framework within which to work. Silcox, according to Grace, also didn't believe that Thompson had, quote, discovered the North for Canadian art and wasn't the first artist to try to take on northern landscapes. Lots of others had between 1890 and 1910, he wrote. Nevertheless, he went on to say, Thompson was now a, quote, legend due to the sense of loss associated with his dying, the mystery of his death, and the mystique of his unfilled genius. He had, Silcox said, become the prophet of the North, which took him back to her. More importantly, according to Grace, this idea that Thompson, quote, was to be claimed for modernism, new landscape art, and perhaps even a new Canadian art movement needed to be viewed within the then context that, quote, masculine prowess with canoe, fishing rod, and brush equaled masculine art, and that this connection as the, quote, son of the North was highly unlikely if one was a daughter, feminine, or effeminate, and therefore sentimental. Not being an artist, nor appreciative art in any way, I have no idea as to what to think of any of these concepts, except to say that the legend part really stuck. Though appreciation of the magnificence of Thompson's art was acknowledged, the mystery of his disappearance and death continued to cause tongues to wag. There was an even a suggestion by Silcox that Thompson's accidental death was because he stood up to pee in his canoe, lost his balance due to a sprained ankle, struck his head on the thwart, knocked himself out, and then fell in the water. An even more bizarre theory came from S. Bernard Shaw in his 2002 book on Canoe Lake and the, and the Tom Thompson murder mystery. He suggested that a tourbillon, or a hundred-mile-an-hour whirlwind, had picked up Thompson, spun him in the air, caused the fishing line to be wrapped tightly around his ankle. He was then dropped back down with his whirling paddle, clipping him on the head, and the, quote, G-force power of the vortex causing the bleeding from his ear, Shaw said. Shaw referenced not just a meteorologist, but also the evidence of two of these sorts of weather events that allegedly had taken place on nearby Lake Opiongo. As theories go, it's an unusual one, but according to the professionals, these types of whirlwinds are more common in the fall, not the summer. And in 1917, no one reported any severe weather of any kind. And given that Canoe Lake is such a small lake, one would have thought that someone would have noticed and reported such a thing. Of course, Mark Robinson's diary didn't indicate any type of weather, nor did he report the state of Thompson's pants zipper either. What we do know is that ever since the late 1960s, dozens, if not hundreds, of books, poems, plays, songs, articles 
and even my murder mystery game have been written about this Thompson legend. As Clage has noted in his book, The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, quote, the new Canadian cultural nationalism of the 1960s, along with the Canadian centennial celebrations, encouraged identification of unique, particularly Canadian heroes. Thompson was an ideal candidate, with his love of Canadian nature, his turn away from wars, and his style of painting that broke with staid European traditions. The prospect that he died of unnatural causes, whether accidental or foul play, appealed to a typically Canadian romantic pessimism. Two other major contributors to this legend have been journalist and author Roy McGregor and art historian and curator Joan Murray. Both have come back to the Thompson story with books and articles many times over the years, repeating their own favorite themes. Joan Murray's contribution is interesting because she comes at the story with the full weight of her role as a curator of several Thompson and Group of Seven art exhibit catalogs and a series of books and articles over many years from as early as 1971 to the mid-1990s. She, like Harold Town, first saw Thompson's art as, quote, modernist heading for abstraction and stressed not just the contribution of Thompson's time with naturalist William Brody, his art lessons received by William Cruikshank in Toronto in 1906, but also the fact that many in his family drew or painted, such as his elder brother George, who was a successful artist in his own right. In this way, she suggests he might have been more open to receiving the influences that he did from MacDonald, Lismer, A.Y. Jackson, and Lauren Harris. She also explored the role of women in Thompson's life and in no uncertain terms called the Group of Seven, quote, essentially a grown-up boys club to which no women were allowed, unquote. She even suggested in 1993 that Thompson's waterfalls and rapids, quote, are an unconscious metaphor for exuberant male sexuality, unquote, reinforcing the rhetoric of many Thompson storytellers of, quote, manly northern woodsman heroics. In the 1980s, she talked about Alice Lambert from Seattle, a supposed arty girlfriend, Elizabeth McCarnan, and Winifred Trainer. She even suggested a possible affair with Annie Fraser, concluding that, quote, Thompson had a perchant for strong-minded woman, unquote, an opinion for which there is little actual evidence, but a marvelous addition to the mythology nevertheless. The only other woman besides Winifred Trainer that is associated directly with Thompson is Florence McGilvray, a fellow artist whom Thompson allegedly said, quote, was the only one who understood immediately what I was trying to do. Unquote. Murray's conclusions, though, were that Thompson was, quote, hypersensitive, secretive, and wary, but also an individual of many moods with an angry dark side, a serious drinker who drank with concentration, and a man most at home in the company of men, unquote. Like Davies, she also saw him as, quote, moody, unpredictable, at times violent, difficult, and complex, who was unhappy with his situation, unquote. Of course, we have no idea if any of this portrait of him is even close to accurate, and it's really unfortunate that Winnie Trainer was never willing to contribute her true knowledge of the man, regardless of whether or not he was a friend or a lover. Murray also spends a lot of time suggesting that Thompson also had a love of literature, especially Rudyard Kipling, seemingly because he illustrated in 1916 a quotation from Kipling's first novel, The Light That Failed. This, of course, took the Thompson invention into a whole new direction, 
But another one that was even more interesting later was her comment in her book, Trees, that, quote, Thompson was conditioned in his preference for trees as a subject matter by literary influences, and that, quote, painting trees, quote, was an unconscious form of therapy for Thompson, brought on by their being emblematic of steadfastness. His trees, in her view, were, quote, ecstatic living presences, like elemental spirits, and in painting them, Thompson himself had become the nature he sought, part of the living environment. As Cheryl Gray said, in other words, Murray was suggesting that trees in Thompson's paintings were self-portraits. As Grace went on to say, quote, this bold idea that man had been replaced with the art, that Thompson was himself the jack pine or the beech grove or the ragged pine or the twisted maple or the solitary bare tree of nocturne is mind-bending. Now, not only did this have me running out to buy her 1990 book called Trees, it also provided some interesting context to a Mark Robinson story of Thompson dropping in to visit him one day. As Robinson told it, quote, he appeared disgruntled, paying no attention to Mrs. Robinson and their children who were visiting, and expressed his desire to find a specific image of a dead pine tree with old branches coming out low down, still with bark on it, but ugly looking. Robinson suggested that there might be one that looked like that up at March Hare Lake, a small lake just east of Canoe Lake, right in behind a former Cambu shanty. Thompson rushed out without saying a word. Later that afternoon, he came back with the completed sketch and kind words for everyone. Murray, it seems, also contributed to the mythology that his grace indicated of Thompson, his art, and his story being not just an essential part of being Canadian, but also being tightly bound to urban longing for unspoiled wilderness, which of course anyone who loves to spend their weekends hiking, camping, canoe tripping, or going to the cottage can totally relate to. Roy McGregor's contribution has been to focus on trying to resolve the mystery once and for all as to how Thompson died, where his remains were actually buried, and to ensure that the essence of Winifred Trainer and her somewhat tragic life was captured. McGregor's perspective is different, both because Trainer is a family member, though distant, but also because his grandfather was a park ranger who at one time had a lease on Lake of Two Rivers in Algonquin Park, where McGregor spent much time as a child. So, though not a true Canoe Lake resident like I have been, he's pretty close. The key questions that have dodged McGregor and many of us Canoe Lake community members as well go something like this. How could Thompson have accidentally drowned on a lake that was calm and that he knew well? Why did the Bletcher siblings not investigate the empty canoe they saw that afternoon, something that every one of us would have done? Did Fraser and Robinson really see Thompson on the morning of July 8th? Was his working paddle really missing, and if so, what happened to it? And what about this fishing line that supposedly was wrapped around his ankle? Were Winnie and Tom really just friends, or were they engaged to be married? Was Thompson really about to run off to the West Coast on another trip and possibly abandon her? Was there really a wild, drunken party on the night before Thompson died? Or did a different confrontation happen the night Thompson returned? And if so, why would Annie Fraser confess her role to Daphne Crombie as an accomplice to a crime committed by her husband? And why would Crombie not immediately report that conversation to the authorities? 
what was Martin Bletcher Jr.'s role in all of this, if anything? And if Bletcher or someone else shot Thompson, wouldn't both a doctor and a veteran just back from the Great War have recognized a bullet wound? Was Thompson's body really moved from the Mowat Cemetery on Canoe Lake and taken to Owen Sound and reburied at Leith? And if it was, then who was the person buried in exactly the same spot? Was the Canoe Lake community a sleepy northern backwater, or was it really a seething mess of conflict? Of course, there are no definitive answers to any of these questions, but in the last decade or so, some new intriguing additions have been added, even if the underlying assumptions may not be based on the known evidence available. In 2009, through the Staten family, McGregor was given access to an interview conducted in 1975 with Dr. Harry Ebbs by my friend and fellow freelance Algonquin historian Rory Mackay. Rory, who is the author of Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other, you met in episode 12 in our discussion of the Cambu Shanty, a key feature of the 19th century lumbering operations. Dr. Ebbs, as previously mentioned, was the doctor to whom the merry band of gravediggers took the footbone they had found. Roy McGregor was also shown a photograph that Ebbs had taken of the skull, found just as it came out of the ground. As has so often been the case, there were some differences from the story that Judge Little had told. In Ebbs's story, pieces of ankle-length deerskin moccasins were found, as were little pieces of gray-ribbed wool sock, which hadn't rotted completely away. This was, of course, slightly different from another version that said that the toes of the Thompson's right foot were within the remains of what was likely a woolen sock. Ebbs added another interesting piece of intrigue when he said that when retrieving the skull, he noted that the upper right incisor was missing. He surmised that a bullet must have struck Thompson on the mouth, dislodged the tooth as it exited, not entered the skull through the left temple. He also intimated that when he held up the skull for all to see at the gravesite, one of the officials, it's not clear if it was Dr. Sharp or the member of the OPP, instantly voiced the opinion that the hole was from a 22 caliber bullet. Dr. Ebbs also recounted a story that Bletcher had once nearly decked him with a paddle when he'd swung too close to Bletcher whilst driving the Camp Amick boat on Potter Creek. A bit of a stretch, I think, to suggest that a bit of boat road rage would lead to murder, but what can I say? Dr. Ebbs was convinced, like little, that Martin Bletcher Jr. was the murderer and had shot Thompson from the Bletcher boathouse. Like many others on Canoe Lake over the years, he also thought that the source of conflict between Bletcher and Thompson was the war. But he also suggested that perhaps there was a rivalry for Winifred Chainer's affection. Like so much else, it was mostly conjecture and hearsay, especially since Bletcher, as mentioned previously, went on to marry a woman from Buffalo in 1918. And as best as we can tell, never had a friendship with Winifred Trainer, let alone a romantic relationship. In 2009, a Dr. Bob Crook, an Ottawa dentist long interested in whether or not the 1956 dig conclusions were correct, decided to do some investigating. Crook had joined the Canoe Lake community in 1997 when he and his family took over the Bletcher lease on Canoe Lake. Within a few years, they had taken down both the Bletcher house and the boathouse and replaced it with a lovely A-frame. With the help of Ottawa orthodontist Dr. Jim Hickman, the two undertook an amateur forensic comparison of known photographs of Thompson with the picture of the skull that McGregor had gotten from the statins. Upon comparison, the two dentists noted that Thompson's eyebrow ridges 
a very prominent anterior chin point and cheekbones, and an imbalance between the lower and middle facial heights were similar to the skull photograph. As they wrote in official speak at the time, quote, we could find no features on the facial or skull photos which would indicate a negative correlation between the two individuals. Other reviews that Roy McGregor had organized by other noted and respected anthropologists and an archaeologist also disagreed with Dr. Sharp's 1956 conclusions. They came back with the view that the skull photograph was of an adult male European, not an Aboriginal person, and more than likely was Tom Thompson. In addition, one went on to point out that as far as she knew, there was no tradition of trephination surgery amongst any of the First Nations of Ontario, and more specifically that the location of the hole was not ideal for such an operation. Their view was that the hole itself was more likely caused by a sharp object. To clinch things, Victoria Lywood, a Montreal-based forensic artist, was asked to see if she could recreate a two-dimensional facial reconstruction from the skull photo. Given only the information that John Doe was likely Caucasian, approximately 40 years of age, lived in the early 19th century and had straight black hair of medium length parted on the left, she came back with an image that looked remarkably like Thompson. Plage's view was that there was too much leading of the witnesses for much of this to be considered real evidence, but it sure does add another very intriguing dimension to the whole story. Another interesting tidbit concerning the Mowat Cemetery came to light in 2015 in Mary Garland's book on the history of the town of Mowat. In 2011, whilst doing research for her book, Garland decided to conduct an experiment with witching rods. For those unaware, witching rods are metal rods that in some way are able, like metal detectors, to pick up slight deflections in the pull of gravity that are caused when foreign objects are placed in the earth. The thinking is that they disturb some natural interaction between the Earth's magnetic lines of force and the pull of gravity. Most people, of course, think this is all hogwash, and maybe it is or maybe it isn't. However, even if it is, it is indeed a great addition to the story. But first, a bit of background. Don Galna, a key source for Garland's book, is the son of Robert Carmel Galna and the grandson of another Robert Galna and the great-grandson of John Galna, all of whom have deep roots in Ontario's lumbering past, especially with the Gilmore Lumber Company. Don's grandfather, Robert Galna, was appointed in 1903 to oversee the dismantling, sale, and moving of all of the machinery associated with Canoe Lake Mills. This was before Shannon Fraser came along. He also became the postmaster in 1903, and it was he with his wife, Anna, who converted the two Gilmore boarding houses into a place to get room and board for visitors. Those visitors were likely the railway employees, a few workmen, and the occasional brave tourist. Unofficially named the Canoe Lake Hotel and later Mowat Lodge, it wasn't recognized as a real commercial venture until Shannon Fraser did so with park officials in 1913 or so. Shannon had likely been renting out rooms to guests prior to obtaining an official lease, as it was Mark Robinson who had, as mentioned previously, recommended that Thompson and Jackson stay there during their first visit to Algonquin Park in 1912. Don Galna had come across the use of witching rods during a time when he was pursuing an official certificate confirming United Empire Loyalist descent. At that point, they were being used to identify the location of remains in a local cemetery. 
With the witching rods and using a process of walking back and forth across the cemetery area, the group discovered five unmarked graves inside the graveyard fence. There was one small one to the north of the 1915 Alexander Hayhurst gravestone and another small one to the east of James Watson's 1897 grave. In addition were three others around the edges of the fence, one to the north of the birch tree, another on the far east side adjacent to the birch tree, and a third to the south of Alexander Hayhurst's grave. Of course, not believing this totally, the crew went back two years later and achieved the same results. The only historical mentions that are known of other unmarked graves in Mowat Cemetery were at the time of their discussion discounted. One was a letter from Audlin Addison, Mark Robinson's daughter, to Mary Garland's father George, stating that Ranger Steve Waters had at one time declared that there were several burials at Canoe Lake. And Rose Thomas, whose father was the Canoe Lake station master during the 19s, reminiscing about Canoe Lake resident Fred Martin's boy George, who died of diphtheria when he was 10 years old, likely the same outbreak that took the life of Alexander Hayhurst. One presumes that Martin couldn't afford a headstone, hence the reason for the grave being unmarked. And last but not least, in 2011, Roy McGregor also proposed in his book Northern Light another intriguing thought. This was that Winnie's father, Hugh, had been upset about Thompson's treatment of Winnie. He wanted to show him a lesson and had recruited Shannon Fraser to do so. This interaction, McGregor suggested, took place on the night of July 8th after Thompson came back from his fishing trip, not the night before, and wasn't about the $250 loan at all, as Crombie had suggested. Clages argues, rightly so, that it's hard to imagine that Hugh Trainer would recruit Fraser given that, according to Winnie, her father detested Fraser, and this was a sentiment that she also shared with the Thompson family in 1917, as I mentioned in Part 2. So net-net, we end up realizing that we have no idea anymore what the facts are. And some would argue, the facts be damned. As Roy McGregor wrote in Northern Light, quote, The Tom Thompson legend doesn't come from facts. It comes from mystique, from the raw naivete of the park people, the removal of the body at midnight, and the bizarre web that knit around Winnie Trainer until she died. In Clages's view, without a doubt, the Thompson name and images he produced have become national shorthand for tragedy, brilliance, and struggle for integrity elements of his life, drawn sometimes from a mythological and less frequently from the factual, have permeated the common Canadian cultural vernacular during almost a century of storytelling. This continued interest and even growth in the number of works, scholarly or otherwise, about Thompson establishes without a doubt that the man's presence as a symbol, as a story, as a model, and as a lesson has become cemented into Canada's national consciousness. From children's stories to songs, from poetry books to parlor games, from fictional to academic history, Thompson's death has moved from something regarded as a fringe concern of conspiracy theorists to a historical reality, deserving analysis. On that note, I think it's time for another song from Ian Tamblin. This one's called Brush and Paddle. And again, it's from his Walking in the Footsteps 
CD celebrating the group of seven. my canvas, my canoe Can you see me clearly now? Russian paddles, stroke by stroke The northern rivers of your public schools I was seen on every wall Can you see me clearly now? I'll come to you alive as all the colors you'll imagine on a canvas. The promised greens of springtime, the threatening grays of fall. Cobalt crimson, the sky is now electric and the light is moving fast. Russian paddles, stroke by stroke, as west winds move the future of white pines. I cannot know the future, I only know this moment and how it is defined. But I'll come to you. Alive is all the colors you'll imagine on a canvas. The promised greens of springtime, the threatening grays of fall. Algonquin, it seems so little time to be alone. Russian paddle, stroke by stroke, through the mist, Bill Mason. Why even care to don't? I am your invention, I am your great need And Thompson, Thompson is my name I come to you by brush and battle Through the lingering mist of a northern lake There, that's my canvas, my canoe Can you see me clearly now? though that still bothers me and needs to be answered though is why? Seventeen years ago, as mentioned previously in 2004, Cheryl Grace, professor of English at the University of British Columbia, 
wrote a book called Inventing Tom Thompson that I have referenced quite a bit. In it, she argued that it was now impossible to recover the real, original Tom Thompson. Not only is this because she says there's a lack of credible information, but there's also no clarity as to his motivations, intentions, or even personality. He left few letters, photographs, no memoirs, no journal, had few close friends, and even at the age of 40, no wife, no children, or even a collection of old girlfriends or lovers. Because there have been so many unanswered questions about both his life and his death, people, and not just Canadians, are just, quote, fascinated and have been forced to imagine who he was and not just invent but reinvent his biography constantly. As she went on to say, he became, with likely not intending to, a universalized romantic idea of the solitary male artist as the embodiment of serious and by this is meant genuine, authentic, and true creativity and originality. As Grace wrote, his claimed Canadianness, his persistent association with the North, his masculine intimacy with nature, often feminized as bush or wild, as measured by his virile command of canoe, fishing rod, backpack, and campfire, and his perceived uncanny ability to capture the essence of Canada in paint. She went on to also say, which I found to be really interesting because I had never thought about it this way before, is that there are all kinds of shrine-like testaments in lots of places, such as the Algonquin Park Visitor Center, the Portage Store, Huntsville, in Owen Sound, and of course all the major galleries such as McMichael and Kleinberg, the Ontario Art Gallery, the National Gallery, the Tom Thompson Art Gallery in Owen Sound, and all of them attract thousands of visitors every year. This legend, according to Grace, quote, overlaps with and informs the Thompson myth and contributes to his ongoing status as a symbol, and this must speak to us individually in a broad number of ways. For some, Grace says it's the, quote, exemplary Canadian life. For others, it's to have a believable hero or someone famous that one can easily identify with. A simple woodsman who created beautiful pictures naturally. Or an early example of Canadian modernism in painting. Grace also feels strongly that, quote, Thompson's cultural capital has been a powerful unifying symbol for the nation, and that the embodied ideal of white masculinity who shuns or does not need women but functions happily within the homosocial network that supports the male-dominated order, we know is patriarchy. Just this thought alone can and likely has spawned hours of debate, though not likely over a campfire. The murder mystery part is much more fun. Grace does go on to say, quote, I can think of no other modern Canadian in any field of endeavor who has been as obsessively invented and reinvented as Tom Thompson. Louis Riel comes as close as the hero of novels, poetry, films, and an opera. But Tom Thompson stands alone in the collective imagination of this country. Cheryl Grace's Thompson is, quote, not a romantic hero, not a master canoeist or fisherman, and certainly not a congenial socializer. Her Tom Thompson is first and last a very powerful artist. But he was also a complex, secretive, 
self-protective, volatile man who had, she has come to believe, a lonely and difficult childhood. His heavy drinking, his solitary ways, his documented swings in mood, and his inarticulacy all suggest layers of personality that would defy even the most intuitive biographer. Because of this dearth of content, as Grace goes on to say, it's, quote, impossible to write about him without confronting the mysteries that surround his death. And we all feel compelled to weigh in in some way, quote, not just as to his fate, but also his role model for all kinds of Canadian values, such as manliness, solitary independence, practical skill in the northern bush, sympathetic but unsentimental intimacy with nature, silence and humility, and the curiosity and courage of an explorer, both on land and on canvas. He lived at a time in history when tremendous change was happening in the world, and so his image was easily incorporated into the dominant narrative of Canadian development and self-images of the ideal Canadian. Some even suggest that his death represented the losses so many suffered during the Great War, and as a result, became a hero, and as Grace said, Canada coming of age as a nation at that time needed heroes. Even after 104 years, the myth-making continues. Attempts to set the record straight and lay out the facts, as Clages tried in 2016 in his book The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson, separating fact from fiction, are often left by the wayside in a cacophony of yes-buts. As Grace says, and I can certainly attest to it in my own life, quote, Thompson seems to have a broad, special appeal to which all Canadians eventually surrender. Each of us invests so much in our versions of Tom Thompson that we go to considerable lengths to tell a convincing story. Biography becomes autobiography. My own lifetime of debates has been great fun, especially arguing with those who have the opposite opinion. So much so that even if there were some magical way to turn back time, I don't know that I'd ever want to know the truth. Now to some of my historian colleagues, this view is sacrilegious. Grace does, though, hit on one point which does resonate with me, based on all of my research and the local stories I've heard over the years, which is that, quote, something in Thompson's life and personality made him at times exceedingly difficult, and something about his death needed for a variety of complex reasons and vested interests to be hidden. The effect of all this attention, especially to the psychological aspects, is a pothole in which all of us storytellers have fallen into and has been to make Thompson increasingly famous, not just in Canada, but internationally as well. In May 2008, Thompson's Pine Trees at Sunset sketch sold for nearly $2 million, something that Thompson in 1916 thought might be worth at best $10 to $15. Even reproductions in 2019 were selling for as much as $900. As David Locke, a Winnipeg art dealer, suggested, quote, the legend of the man and the romance of the story have likely had as much to do with prices as the magnificent art itself. He's really our Van Gogh. So what is one to make of all of this? Clage's view is that, quote, Tom Thompson mystery is an illusion or fabrication of the mind and is not what it has been made to appear. No amount of research is going to offer a definitive solution and the cause will remain forever a mystery. 
Much of the evidence to support the fact that he committed suicide or was murdered, Clages believes is untrustworthy. And as he wrote in 2016, quote, many incorporate fanciful speculation, routed in gossip, misunderstanding, and the desire to tell entertaining stories, all of which is true, at least from my perspective. However, as Clages does go on to say, none of this, even the potential blow to his image of a skilled outdoorsman accidentally falling out of his canoe and hitting his head and drowning, takes away from the quality and contribution of his art and one's appreciation of it, which of course also is true. As Clausius shared, that Tom Thompson's painting has become a part of the national identity is a grand legacy for a man who had little art training but took the greatest pleasure in life from painting out under the open sky. That he died under that same sky on the waters and among the trees and islands that populate his painting is no doubt tragic and will ever remain so. A hundred years on from his passing, he has not been forgotten, nor has the land he loved. Each year, thousands of people flock to go see his paintings and to visit Algonquin Park. As a model, as an inspiration, his influence lives on. He would be heartily gratified, however, knowing what role he played and continues to play in alerting Canadians to their artistic and natural heritage. As Cheryl Grace wrote, Tom Thompson was an ideal figure for appropriation as a national icon. In so many ways, he simply fits the pattern. Algonquin Park embodied all those qualities of the North that the central Canadian imagination projected on the entire country. Few human beings, pristine wilderness, snow and ice, challenging water and wildlife, freedom, adventure, and the test of one's manhood. As Harold Town wrote in Silence in the Storm, quote, the tragedy of Thompson's death fulfills the Canadian love of defeat and annihilation, a national tick that may be explained by our tiny seasons of pleasure. This national script is deeply ingrained in the Canadian psyche, but it is not merely negative and it has served and shows every sign of continuing to serve a nationalist agenda because it provides a unifying, rallying point in times of stress because it seems apolitical. It focuses on what most Canadians share, life in a cold climate, where an ice storm can cripple our sophisticated cities, where a person can die from exposure, black flies, an avalanche, bear attacks, or starvation, and where camping, canoeing, fishing, all those summertime dreams of escape from urban sprawl still lure us northwards. In his death, at least as it has been imagined, invented, and reproduced for us, Tom Thompson focuses both the fear and the desire experienced by many generations of Euro-Canadians and by new immigrants as they search for a place to call home, and it eases the distress caused by living here, or by not living here, if we can project those emotions onto someone else's story and share in it vicariously. In many ways, Tom Thompson is our collective story, our communal autobiography. Unfortunately, it's an incomplete story and leaves out, as Grace says, a whole collection of stories and facts about the First Nations inhabitants, which are another Algonquin defining moment, which I'll talk about in another episode. So just for the record, what is my invention of Tom Thompson? Having lived and breathed the Tom Thompson story most of my life as a summer resident of Canoe Lake, I created in 2000 for fun a murder mystery game. 
In order to make it all work out, all of the protagonists in the Canoe Lake story had to have a murder motive. The eight game players that I chose included Annie and Shannon Fraser, Ed and Molly Colson, Martin Bletcher Jr. and his sister Bessie, Winifred Trainer, and of course Park Ranger Mark Robinson. The scene takes place a month or so after Thompson's death and Robinson, still perturbed about the suspicious circumstances, convenes a meeting to resolve it all once and for all. Of course, over a three-course dinner with lots of wine. In my invention, the canoe that Bessie and Martin saw was the Colson's canoe that had slipped its moorings. Though it was odd that they didn't stop to check it out, as they properly should have, in my version they ran into Thompson himself fishing at Tea Lake Dam. Here we discover that Bessie, it turns out, had a secret passion for Thompson, and when coming upon him, threw herself at him. He, of course, being unofficially betrothed to trainer as she was with child, pushes her away and she falls down. Now here we could go in one of two directions. First, she was the one who hit him on the head with a paddle, or her brother Martin comes upon the scene and in turn pushes Thompson, who falls and hits his head on the rocks. Either way, thinking him dead, brother and sister motor back to their cabin after dark, hide him and his canoe in their boathouse, and in the stealth of night weigh his body down with rocks and send him to the bottom of Canoe Lake. In my telling, Crombie was right when he was pregnant and did want to get married and with his death did go to Philadelphia, but had a miscarriage, and hence there are no records for Roy McGregor to find. And for the final creme de la creme, Thompson is still buried at Canoe Lake, which, as a lawyer Canoe Laker, one must believe that. However, the final piece de résistance was the discovery of the missing paddle murder weapon by my brother in the late 1970s. He found it in the late fall at the bottom of the bay just south of us on Canoe Lake, embedded in the mud. That year, the water level was very low, and the paddle, about the right size for a six-foot man, had the tell-tale chip out of the blade. It was weathered, just like one would have thought would have been, all those years later. It still resides with great dignity on our screened-in porch wall. If I do say so myself, all of it is just as good as any of the other invented stories and is really marvelous round a campfire on a calm and moonlit canoe lake night. So I invite all of you listeners to appropriate whatever parts of Thompson that you want to be, whether it's his art, his love of the outdoors, the mystery of his death, and in whatever way you envision it and imagine your own version and integrate it into what you believe yourself to be as a Canadian. In the fall of 2020, I finally had to give up my little piece of heaven on Canoe Lake, and I find its loss to be far more difficult than I thought it would be. But in its own way, I guess creating this podcast is helping me heal. I hope you've enjoyed this third of a three-part series about Tom Thompson and his adventures in Algonquin Park. As I mentioned before, a reference list of the titles used to create these episodes can be found in the episode descriptions on www.podbean.com or on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Through the lingering mist of a northern lake 
There, that's my canvas, my canoe Can you see me clearly now? Russian paddles, stroke by stroke The northern rivers of your public schools I was seen on every wall Can you see me clearly now? I'll come to you alive as all the colors you'll imagine on a canvas. The promised greens of springtime, the threatening grays of fall. Cobalt crimson, the sky is now electric and the light is moving fast. Russian paddles, stroke by stroke, as west winds move the future of white pines. I cannot know the future, I only know this moment and how it is defined. But I'll come to you. Alive is all the colors you'll imagine on a canvas. The promised greens of springtime, the threatening grays of fall. Algonquin, it seems so little time to be alone. Russian paddle, stroke by stroke, through the mist, Bill Mason. Why even care to dawn? I am your invention, I am your great need And Thompson, Thompson is my name I come to you by brush and battle Through the lingering mist of a northern lake There, that's my canvas, my canoe Can you see me clearly now?